Good evening. Quite the full crowd tonight. So, I think there might be a couple of seats left in the back. So, see if we can get some extra chairs, some folding chairs out. <laughs> Sorry, that's it's over now. Don't worry, that joke is now over. So, let's uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word, for it is life to us. We thank you, Father, for the the blessings that you teach us from your word and for the warnings, God, that you give us as well. As we read your word and as we consider what you, Lord Jesus, wrote, the epistle, as it were, that you gave to John for the church in Sardis. I pray, Father, that we would learn the lesson that you had for them, and you would give it to us as well. You'd train us by it. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 6 together. We're going to spend our time considering the letter that was given given to the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not, I'm sorry, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In A.D. 17, A.D. 17, a part of the mountains that the city of Sardis was situated between collapsed, causing a massive earthquake and covering nearly all of what Sardis is known most heavily for is their fortified city, the the old ancient fortified city. Sardis was founded sometime around 1200 BC. And around the 720-ish mark BC, they were, uh, their claim to fame, I guess you'd say, would be they were the first township government to, to circulate printed currency, printed coins. 
So Sardis was, if, if you have a dollar bill in your pocket, you can thank the sardines. I'm just kidding. I don't think that's what you'd really call them. Uh, and I won't call them that ever again. However, I just thought that was a funny joke and I figured I'd toss it in there. But really, they did mint the first coins. They were the first civilization to do that. As a matter of fact, uh, their wealth was so great, uh, it kind of became somewhat of an idiom in Jewish culture and in uh, Greco-Roman culture. But during the Roman Empire, there was a great uh, um, famine that struck the land. And in 92 AD, 92 AD, uh, even though the city was so well known for their great vines and their beautiful beautiful land, so fertile, um, Domitian actually demanded that over half of their grapevines would be destroyed to be made way for crops of corn, which, which they were in such great need for. The, the situation of Sardis, the, the geography of Sardis was such that it was kind of like the, the mountain rock face was behind them, and then like almost on uh, this fertile plateau it sat, nestled in the, the mountains, and then on the face of it, it went down further. There's a, a kind of like a rock face below them. So it was heavily fortified, just geographically speaking. And so also with that, that caught all the mountain rain. So the land was beautifully fertile. Uh, interesting little tidbit of information about Sardis when Domitian demanded that they take away, you know, over half of the vineyards, their, one of their greatest exports to Ephesus, the, the church, I'm sorry, uh, not to Ephesus, but to uh, the next church, which is Philadelphia, um, like their, their biggest trading partner was Philadelphia. And what they provided to Philadelphia was wine. So it was great for the Roman Empire, and it was terrible for Sardis. So anyways, uh, just a little historical background there. That's interesting stuff. Uh, in the time when John was writing, uh, when he was writing his uh, gospel as well as his letters uh, to the church, and uh, also here in the Revelation era, Sardis, their trade center was known um, the world around for their textiles. So they had great wine, they had all that, then they had corn. But they became very well known for their textiles. They manufactured them, they dyed, they, they were very uh, involved in dyeing things and making jewelry, costume jewelry, as well as real jewelry. Sardis was the capital city of Lydia, not the person, but uh, the, the, the state, as it were. To this day, actually, an idiom exists based upon the riches of that time period, like specifically during biblical times, the governor or head of state in Sardis, his name was Croesus, and so in that general area, there is still an idiom that exists to this day as rich as Croesus. Croesus was so rich that people assumed he had 
limitless money. It, it, it would be equivalent to the Jeff Bezos of our day. Just the, the, the one particular individual who has so much money, there's literally nothing that they couldn't buy. They could buy property, they could be, buy land, they could do whatever they wanted. So Croesus was so rich. So you could say Jeff Bezos is as rich as about as Croesus was. Unfortunately, he led the Lydian Empire into defeat and decline. Sardis epitomized the idea of complacency. The idea of softness and degeneration, which oftentimes accompanies extreme wealth. Okay, so another little piece of historical data, because this is really fun. Okay, so, you know, if we don't study these, like, places, you know, how fun is it, you know? Uh, about, um, before Christ, it was in the B.C.s, I think it was the 600, somewhere around there, uh, the Persian Empire was trying to take over the capital city of Lydia, they were trying to take over Sardis. And the Persian Empire was having such a terrible time, they just couldn't break through, they couldn't overpower them. And it's said that uh, one of the Persian army captains was just watching his, his army fail. You know, it's over and over and over again. And one day, he's standing there, just watching, looking up at this, this area. Where you, you've got this mountain face, you know, this crag, so you can't really go at them from the top, can't circle around and come down, that's, you know, you just fall to your death. And then they've got this rock face in front of them that's protecting them as it were, almost like a wall, like an inscalable wall. And they're, the road going to and from, coming in and out, so heavily fortified, what are you going to do? The, the Sardis armies really didn't have to do much but protect the roads. So as this Persian captain was just standing there frustrated looking at this situation he looked and he saw a sardis soldier he had dropped his helmet over the wall and so the sardis soldier and over the wall at a particular spot climbed down with great ease one of these little crags in the wall in front in the, in the rock face in front very little, very little trouble at all, got his helmet, put it on his head, and then climbed back up and got in there. That night, that Persian army captain, all right, boys, let's go. We're going up right here. And they sacked Sardis that night. That is a, uh, a picture a snapshot of the kind of attitude that a, a typical Sardinian would have. A, a typical person from Sardis would have. They were, they were a wealthy community. They had all the lavish things that one would need. They were so well protected. As a matter of fact, when uh, Croesus, one of the main reasons why he lost it in... Uh, lost it in like a, I think it was like 300 or 400 BC somewhere around there when he lost it 
one of the reasons why is because he got so lax with his concern over the protection of the city. The guard was so far down. As a matter of fact, when they got sacked in 700 and 600 and 400, each time it was because the people just grew lazy when it came to their defenses. They thought, we're fine. We're okay. Everything's good. This is possibly a picture of one of the reasons why we find the kind of mentality that we find in the church of Sardis. The church of Sardis was made up of people who most likely grew up in Sardis, had the cultural trappings of someone who grew up in Sardis, had a history, possibly family members, going back generations. I mean, one of the oldest communities in this area. And we find the letter that Christ delivers by way of John to the church in Sardis has very little good or positive to say. We just read the letter to Thyatira, which has nothing bad to say. I mean, it's praise to the work of the Lord in the church in Thyatira. And we're about to look at Philadelphia, who has nothing but praise sandwiched between these two churches that have such high accolades from our Lord is a church that has nothing real good to say. Not collectively about the entirety of the church. Look at what he says here. Beginning in verse 1 again, he says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who, was, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So here's, here's his letter. Here we go. I know your works. And that sounds familiar. Sounds like Thyatira. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I know your works. As I knew Thyatira's works, because I have this flame of fire that illuminates everything around me, I know all things. So also I know your works, Sardis, that your works are worthless. The works of dead hands do nothing. At least nothing of value. If you're dead... There is nothing that your hands can accomplish ultimately. Spiritual death in human beings doesn't stop us from doing things, from pushing things around in this life. But the value of those things is one of the points he's making here. The idea that your works accomplish nothing. But not only do the works of dead hands do nothing, they actually do something actively, as it were. (coughs) They defile. Being dead and yet still handling and, and holding and managing things, all it does is defile those things around you. So literally, by saying, look, you've got all of these works. You have a reputation for being alive, but I know that you are dead. It highlights the reality that 
that this reputation, it seems like what you are doing is good, but truly what you're actually doing is defiling. You're dead. You, you cannot do something good. What you put your hands to do is more than worthless. It's actually working against. Because it is defiling other things. So, um, uh, just a, an application point here. If, if we, at the end of the day, stand before God, and he looks at us, and, and we look back at him, and we have buckets and buckets of good works. Bring these suckers in, lay them at his feet, stand back. And yet we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Those buckets of good works, those things that we would present to God as evidence as to why we should be allowed in, into his heaven, will become not, they won't just be picked up and tossed out, they will be poured back on top of us. Jesus describes that in Matthew 7. This idea of, of on that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, professing prominently, vehemently, that Jesus is Lord, and yet they are dead themselves. And they have dead works. And, he, and, and what do they say? They say, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not performed many great works in your name? I will say to them, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. The, the works that are performed outside of the bounds of Christ, outside of the strength and the power of Christ, from outside of the life that Christ gives to us, it's not just worthless wood, hay, and stubble. It is working in lawlessness. It is a defilement upon even our own heads. And, and this is something that Jesus brings to the church in Sardis. You have, this, <clears throat> you have this reputation for being alive, but I'm telling you, all of your works, I see them all, and they are coming from dead men and dead women's hands. They're worse than worthless. What I find interesting here is that it seems like Sardis may have been the community where Facebook took off. And that just, they, like, we think we know who started Facebook. But I think Sardis was behind Facebook. You have a reputation. Listen, listen. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Honesty in your walk with the Lord is of more value than how many people you can influence. 
But yet, the church in America today, in large, cares about how the persona of the church looks more than the content or the people inside of the church. And Jesus, what he's communicating is that <coughs> the content, the content of your heart and your lifestyle, whether or not you are alive to Christ and dead to sin, that matters far more than any catchy phrases you can put up on a billboard and get people to walk in your front door. It doesn't matter how, how good you look, what kind of reputation you have for feeding the homeless or helping the poor or whatever. Reputations are worthless. Honesty about who we are in Christ is of utmost and complete importance. The, the church in Sardis got that wrong. They, they had this reputation. People looked at them and said, wow, look at their works. Look at, look at how much they are alive. And yet Christ's pronouncement upon them is your dead. The church in Sardis looks a lot like churches that I've seen online and in town. Which kind of leads me to this little side jaunt here that I want to take. There's a lot of hypotheses about what these letters are. Uh, you know, what, what is their greater meaning? And as a matter of fact, we had that question. You know, do these... Do these letters have a greater significance than just the historical elements of, of, okay, the church in Sardis, the church in Thyatira, the church in Philadelphia? Does it, does it have greater significance? So let me tackle that question here at this moment. When we're looking at Sardis and we hear about this reputation of life, but actuality of death, <laughs> the... Uh, the riches that they experience, the security that they believe they have, and it all being just something that causes them to become complacent. <laughs> if it didn't sound like America or American churches, you're not listening or paying attention to American churches. Because that sounds so similar. There's, there's three... There's Three main um, positions as to what this is. It's purely historical. <clears throat> Another would be dispensational. <clears throat> and the other would be typographical. Not topographical, not location-based. Typographical. Types. They're types. Uh, in other words, it's only just the historical churches. That's one interpretation. Then there's... Uh, I would, I would say that those who would take the other two would agree that they are the biblical ones. Would agree that these seven churches that Jesus is writing to are historical churches. However, they also express different dispensations of time or different blocks of, of the church age, for instance. So the, the dispensational view 
uh, would be this, not to be confused with, I, I hesitate to use dispensational because it's not just people who are dispensational, if you know what that term means or what it references to, but speaking specifically about the dispensations of time throughout the church history. So these different epochs or, or epochs of time that go through the, the church in Ephesus, um, essentially, you know, 80, 33 to 100 is what uh, the dispensationalists would say. The church in Smyrna, the era of persecution under the Caesars from 100 to 312-ish. The church in Pergamum is the era of church-state union from 312 to 590 when Constantine took over and essentially created the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. The church in Thyatira would be the era spanning uh, the Middle Ages from 590 to 1517, right before the, really the, the seedlings of the Reformation began. So that church, that, that church would be the pure church. The church in Sardis would be the Protestant Reformation. That hurts, right? 1517 to 1750. Although, being reminded of what Martin Luther said from Sunday. Thank you, Demetrius, for bringing him back down to earth. Um, that would be Thyatira. The church in Sardis. I'm sorry, Sardis is the Reformation era. The church in Philadelphia era <clears throat> would be during the Great Awakening. Uh, and the Great Awakening, 1750 to 1925, that early 20s. And the church in, of Laodicea uh, is the era of higher criticism. Uh, that, that phrase, higher criticism, is a, a theological term speaking of, of uh, higher criticism of the scriptures. Not, uh, that, that's from uh, 1900 to the end of time. It's like, I guess we're there. Like, you know, maybe we got another 50 years. <clears throat> so that, that's, that's a view. That's this idea. There's different eras or dispensations of time. And that's what these churches represent. There's another. There's a third idea. So there's first the historical. They're only historical. The dispensations or the eras theory would be that they were historical. Absolutely. However, they were also uh, they're also pointing us to uh, different eras in the history of church leading up to the coming of Christ. So we can kind of mark it and say, okay, now here we go. Here's Jesus. He's coming back soon. Or then the third is the typographical, the, the types of churches. This view believes definitely in the historicity, the, the specific churches that existed. But it also, however, takes the perspective that they were indicative, these letters and these churches were indicative of seven basic types of church that span any era of time. That aren't just, you know, locked into the Protestant Reformation. You guys are Sardis. Way to go. One could even go further, and, and oftentimes they do, is that it's, it's even more involved is that it's indicative of certain types of Christians or times in a Christian's life when they're more like Ephesus when they're working so hard but they've forgotten their first love 
Or they're like Thyatira, where they're under heavy persecution, and yet though they're being persecuted, they're still holding fast. Or like Sardis, they're on the precipice of being called not Christians by proving themselves to not be Christians. Therefore, wake up! And churches, no matter if they're in the 1600s, the 1900s, or today, they can be an Ephesus-like church or a Sardis church. They can be a Thyatira or a uh, Philadelphia-type church. I believe, my personal belief is in the typology, the typographical. I think that, that's where I land on it. Because I don't look at the outline of eras and say, the, the summation of the Middle Ages was of a picture of a uh, pure-of-heart church. Or, or look at the Reformation era and say, no, nope, you guys, you, got, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're really dead. I, I don't see that. I do know that I'm like Ephesus sometimes. I'm like Sardis. I'm like, sadly, Laodicea. My usefulness is exhausted. And I better not be lukewarm anymore. I identify with that kind of thought process, which I don't believe pulls away from the meaning. I think it enhances the meaning of this text. I think it encourages the meaning of this text. I think it, it propels the idea of this letter. Why Jesus gave this letter to Sardis, specifically to Sardis, and then kept it not just for Sardis, but for you and for me. Because we have a tendency to fall into these categories ourselves. We have times and blocks of our Christian life where we're going strong to the Lord and the Lord is calling us to just hold fast. And then we don't. And we abandon our first love. So, we know if nothing else, the letter to the church in Sardis was to an actual church in the place with the rock face and the fortification with the history of the Persian army with the incredible wealth and the vineyards and the, the dyes and the linens and the mercantile and all of those things the first printed coins to a church in that day Stationed as it were in that town, Christ said, You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Probably one of the hardest and harshest things that a church could hear. And uniformly, the warning that Revelation gives us is for the churches. If you don't repent, I'm going to take your lampstand away. 
And Sardis looks like a church that is on the precipice, on the very edge of having their lampstand ripped from them. And to steal from this Sunday's passage, uh, behold the severity of God. Looking forward to that, Demetrius, Sunday. Isn't that what's coming up? Yeah. The severity of God. But also the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God. Because the next thing out of Christ's mouth to this church who is on the very brink of losing their lampstand having the epitaph written over their heads, you're dead by Jesus, he gives them the imperative, wake up. Wake up. Rise from your death. Strengthen yourself. Read it with me. He says, verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. You are on the very brink. You are on your deathbed, Church Sardis. Wake up. Rise. Why? Why does he say this? Why? Why is it? Is it just because he just says you're dead? No, because he has found that their works are incomplete. They will not stand in the presence of his Father. He says... Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete or whole. All of these works, these works are so, so elaborate, so, so beautiful, they, they look so nice. Yet they're missing the one single element that makes them worth anything, worth bringing before my Father. That's the Spirit of God. Being infused with the life of Christ. Doing them not for the reputation or the look or the image, but doing them for the sake of God's glory alone. I cannot bring your gifts, I cannot bring your works before my Father. He will not accept them because they stem from dead men's and dead women's hands. So wake up. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Severe in the fact that if they don't wake up, they will lose their lampstand. And if this is an expression for us to take, I I, I will say this, regardless of how we view these letters in the broad scope of the entirety of the prophecies of the book of Revelation, I can tell you that because it's scripture, we can absolutely use this expression and this text and this letter as application for our hearts. If we find ourselves doing dead men's works, dead women's works, then we are called by God to wake up. We are called by God to strengthen that which is about to die. The letter is written to that church as a whole, but it's also written to those individual members of it. So this letter is written to our church as a whole, and it's also written to its individual members. 
Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Now, this, this is a kindness, but, but it's flavored with a consequence. I, I'm, I'm calling you, I'm bidding you, wake up. Christ did not have to give them an opportunity for repentance, but he does. And this is about as brash and as harsh of a, of a, of a, of a kindness as you can get. Wake up or you're going to die. And when I say die, I mean that I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now Jesus said some awesome things to the church in Thyatira, right? Like, whoo, man, I want to be Thyatira, right? I do not want to be Sardis. You do not want to be Sardis. And if you find that you are Sardis, wake up. Repent. Remember then what you received, what you heard. Remember the gospel. Be reminded of the beauty of the gospel. Keep it. And repent. If you will not, he will come like a thief against you. Yet, verse 4, more kindness. I love, I love the Lord in the fact that like every time he comes and brings hard, hard rebukes, it's always, there's this, there's this offer. There are times when there's not an offer. When Jesus says to the Pharisees, you cannot come, this, this, it, it's over. So, so know that Jesus can say to the church in Sardis that he is capable of saying and has said to others you cannot come it's over I've taken your lampstand and you're done I'm coming against you but here to this church to us even 2,000 years later he says in verse 4 yet you have still a few names in Sardis people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now, I, I want to remind us of this phrase, soiled garments. Immediately, it draws my mind back to Isaiah 64. I, I'd imagine some of us might remember this phrase or have heard this verse, but we have all become one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like polluted or filthy or soiled garments. Uh, reading a commentary on that statement, that soiled garments, this idea of soiled garments, it's, it wasn't uh, rags, like, like the King James Version or the New King James Version, they used uh, filthy rags, but they weren't rags, they were actually garments. The word specifically talks about an inner or interior uh, waist cloak. In other words, if you were one for wanting it, it would be underwear. And the filthy, the soiled, right, 
You know, Isaiah 64 speaks to menstrual soiling, which in, this is always an awkward conversation when you go here, but in the Old Covenant, for seven days, a woman would be deemed unclean, ceremoniously unclean. She could not come before the temple. She would have to go outside of the gates for seven days away from her family, away from her husband, away from the synagogue, away from the people of God, and she would have to live there for seven days outside of the presence of God because of this ceremonial uncleanliness. Now, you cut your finger and there's oozing, you're also outside the gates. You have to wait seven days, you have to come back. If, uh, if you've got this weird lesion on your if skin, you know, maybe you just got a sunburn and it's bubbling a little bit, you still got to. So there's all these different things. It's not just this one thing. So the idea of, of soiled garments was not particularly like, oh, this is terrible, you know. It's a quick reminder that you are unclean before God. The garment would normally be okay, but because of God's law, it is now soiled. It is now polluted. Another thing that your mind should maybe drift to when we're talking now about Revelation 3, when we're talking about this idea of of the person who is found worthy, you might question yourself and say, okay, well, who are these special people who are worthy at the Church of Sardis? Like, wow, okay, so... I want to be that person. Your mind should drift to Zechariah 3. Let me read to you from verses 1 through 5. Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It is not is not this a brand plucked from the fire. Joshua the high priest was nothing special. He was merely just a brand plucked from the fire. These people in Sardis that had not polluted their garments. They weren't anything special. They were just brands plucked from the fire, kept by the power of God. That's why they were worthy. That's why their garments weren't soiled. It wasn't because of what they did. It's because of what what we find God did to Joshua, the high priest. And he says, a brand plucked from the fire. Now verse 3, he says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, soiled garments, polluted garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. This isn't, this isn't somebody who has done some amazing thing. This person in Sardis who has pure garments is not somebody who has, has done the right mood maneuver to please God. It's the one whom Christ maneuvered himself to the cross and suffered and died for. This is the person. And he says, the angel of the Lord says to him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let me put, uh, I'm sorry. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. 
So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Here's the scene. Here's the scene. You have Satan accusing the brethren. And you have Christ saying, That one? Yeah, he's one of mine. That, that one over there? Yeah, she's one of mine. And in Sardis, there are some. There are some people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. Why? Because they're worthy. Not because they're worthy. But because they're worthy because of his worthiness given to them. The garments that they wear, that they walk in white with him, are his garments that he won, that he purchased on the cross. Keep reading verse from verse 4 into verse 5. He says, the one who conquers. And this is, this is a classic. This is, this is how he always orders and structures his uh, epistles here, Jesus does, to the churches. Verse 5, he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus. Do you hear that? Again, just to clarify, it's not like I'm pulling this out of context here. It's like, well, it says that they're worthy. And they're dressed in white. Why? Because they're clothed by God. And anyone else who conquers, anyone else in this situation, anyone else that finds themselves that are like Sardis, and they wake up, or maybe they're around a bunch of sardines. I said I wasn't going to use the word again. But I had to. It's like a bookend. If you find yourself in a can of sardines... It's a word picture you didn't think was going to come. Like, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to think about a can of sardines. If you find yourself stuck in that briny mess with all of that around you, remember who clothed you. Remember who holds you. And remember the promise that he who conquers let me read it again. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never, never, never. Sardis, you are close to death. But the one whom I clothe in white vestments, like Joshua the high priest, Zechariah, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess him, his name, before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this letter. Thank you for the letter that you authored to this specific people in Sardis. And thank you that it reminds me that I I need to wake up. We need to strengthen what is about to die.
Father, may it be that if we find ourselves as Sardis did, we would repent. And if we find ourselves around Sardis, we would be encouraged and we would be an encouragement. Keep us from seeking a reputation alone. Produce within us a longing for real relationship. protect this church from going the way of the complacent church in Sardis. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.